we will uh, be getting into chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, but we're going to start back in chapter 7 at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against, against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Thanks, Jim. Um, this is uh, part of the book that you kind of look forward to, but it it's going to be challenging to preach too. There's some, there's some difficult things here. So uh, with that in mind, let's ask the Lord to join us. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord, thank you for these tremendous, these huge promises that you give us in your word. Lord, I pray that you would make it possible for us to truly believe them and to live as if these promises are real, setting our hope on something that we can't see yet, but sure that it's coming. And uh, Lord, I love some of the promises that we're going to get to look at this morning. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds as we open your word and help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to see. Uh, we need you, Lord. We, we need you. Uh, Father, I want to pray for um, Harlan West as he's recovering from surgery. Lord, thank you for the mercy that they didn't have to take his entire kidney. Um, but I uh, pray that the healing for the, the work that they did do would take place. And Lord, that you would re renew his strength and uh, have him upright and moving soon. Father, thank you for sparing him from uh, the uh, coronavirus while he was inside the hospital. And uh, Lord, I just uh, am grateful for my brother and I pray that you would uh, restore his strength soon. And Lord, I also pray for Jeannie as she's been sick uh, this past week. Lord, would you renew her strength? And I thank you for her um, indomitable spirit. Lord, she's always... Um, uh, ready to come back and, and uh, just a, a positive force for the gospel. Lord, thank you for making her who she is, for making her part of our body, and uh, for allowing us to enjoy her. We pray that you would heal our sister in Christ. And now, Lord, pray that you would open this word. Oh, uh, Father, I want to pray for our nation as well. Um, Lord, there is just so much unrest and so much um, trouble in our nation, thinking of uh, Kenosha, um, where Lisa and I used to go just for a weekend to get away, just to drive up there. And Lord, the, um, the young man who, who shot protesters and shot rioters or whoever he was uh, from Antioch, where we lived, Lord, that struck really close to home for me. And uh, uh, Lord, I pray that um, you would give to our, um, our leaders, our civil leaders, Lord, wisdom 
um, resolve, clarity of sight, so that we can deal with the unrest that, that is uh, happening, not by caving into it, not by coddling it, nor by ignoring it or trying to overpower it with force, but Lord, that we could listen as a nation to the, uh, the, um, the issues that drive unrest and that as a nation together, we might solve it instead of having these bitter divides and, and um, this strife. Lord, I pray that uh, you would uh, again make United States united. Um, Father, help us. But Lord, none of that is going to have any long-term effect. None of it's even really absolutely possible um, in any significant, meaningful way, unless, Lord, you bring the gospel again to this nation. Father, you have brought revival to our nation a handful of times in the past. Uh, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Businessmen's Awakening, um, numerous small movements throughout the nation. Father, would you bring a revival to this land again? Uh, you can. Um, you, you are um, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you uh, strengthen and equip your church? Would you mobilize us in prayer? And Lord, would you bring revival to our nation? And uh, Lord, that's the greatest healing that can come. Father, would you be with us now in your word? Holy Spirit, would you open it to us? Jesus, would you shine brightly on these pages so that we might see and trust you more? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as Jim said, we, back up, we backed up a little bit to catch the end of chapter 7. Um, and then we'll press on through the first portion of chapter 8. Uh, the reason I did that was I, I wanted to go back and look at that end of chapter 7 again, because I think it really defines for us the war that we're engaged in. Um, and then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, tell us who the combatants in that war are. And then finally, verses 9 through 11, tell us the victory of the war. So the first part, the end of chapter 7, is, is about laws. Uh, the first part of chapter 8, 1 through 8, is about flesh, and verses 9 through 11 is about spirit. So it's the war, the combatants, and the victor is, uh, is what we're going to look at this morning. So in, in uh, this first part, the war, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We looked at it last week, and also a lot of those concepts are just kind of laid down there but picked up in the next section. So let's just take a, a real quick look at verses 7, or the end of chapter 7, 21 through 25. Um, this is the portion of Romans I was thinking of when I said previously that the way Paul uses the word law, nomos in Greek, the way that he uses the word law is very complicated. And as uh, Jim was reading through that, and, and I'll read it again just so we can get it fixed in our minds, you can see that the, law, the word law changes uh, in a lot of different ways. It, it moves back and forth. So let me read it really briefly and listen for law and what law is in, in these different contexts. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, uh, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So did you hear the shifting way that law is used? It's both positive and negative. It's life and death. It's good and it's bad. It, it's a really a challenging way to handle it. So um, what we're going to see in this section or what we see here is there are these two laws waging war going back and forth. And so what does he mean by law? I think the best explanation that I've heard was one that John Murray said. Um, he says that law is regulating and actuating power as well as legislative authority. So the way Paul uses it, it could just be this regulating and actuating. In other words, this, this power that moves us or this principle, this idea that moves us as well as a legislative authority. And, and it can move back and forth between them. So as we look at this, pay attention to where it is. He says, first of all, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is at close at hand. So there's this law, this, this regulating principle that says, first of all, I want to do right. I want to do the right thing. But this, this regulating principle, is this authority also says, well, evil is close at hand. 
Um, so there's these two things going on. That's why I said last week, Paul here is not talking about somebody before they become a Christian. He's talking about the life of a Christian because the, the person before they're converted does not want to do right. They delight in doing evil. And we saw that in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. So this is the person who is now engaged in the war, who wants to fight against that. They want to do what's right, but evil's right there. It is really close. So he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The unbeliever does not delight in the law of God, especially not in the inner being or the inner man, the inside person. Um, so what's going on here is, as we saw last week, is we have been made new. And so our heart, our desires are different. And our desire internally is to delight in the law of God. And, and think of, um, of uh, Psalm 19, the second half of Psalm 19, the, the, the uh, commandment of the Lord is right, uh, delighting the soul. The psalmist goes through and just is pouring over the commandments of God and finding them delightful. The same thing happens in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Is the, I, am, I am guided by your word. Your, your, your law directs me. It commands me. And so that's the life of the believer is, is internally we have this desire to follow the law, to, to follow God, to live according to how he's revealed. The problem is... There's this law that's that says evil is close at hand. So verse 23, Paul says, but I see in my members another law. So I, internally, my heart, I delight in your law, but my members, my, my natural portion of my body that has not been renewed yet um, is at war against the law of my mind taking me captive. I go back and forth. And so what we find is that we're in, locked in this battle. Um, our hearts have been renewed. We're struggling to follow God. We would delight in that, but it's just far too easy. Our, our, our fallen nature, which hasn't been redeemed yet, is still struggling in that direction. Our heart is heading in this direction, and our body, our, our physicality, our, our fallen portion of us is still wanting to march the way it was going. And so this is the war. This is the battle, is these two war against each other. The law of my mind and the law of sin and death, which dwells in my members and back and forth. And so Paul, recognizing this, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Um, and I, what I said last week was, why would a Christian speak this way? Why would a Christian talk about being sold under sin and those kind of things? Well, what I think Paul is doing is he's, he's maturing in Christ. He's growing in grace. And as he looks at his life now, he's not that violent persecutor of the church. He's not that person who, um, who stood by Stephen stoning and approved. He's not the evil man who had letters to go and arrest Christians and drag them off to jail. Those sins have faded away. He's been born again. But now what he sees in himself is something much smaller by comparison. He sees covetousness as a problem. Why am I, I didn't want to covet, now that's all I can think about is coveting. So what he's seeing is he's seeing those smaller sins as much bigger. Um, and so that's why he would say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Lord, I don't want to do these things. Will you free me from this? Who's going to free me from this? And then the exclamation, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's going to take that thanks be to God and unpack it in this next section. He's going to show how it is that the thanks goes to God and that it's through Jesus Christ. It's, it's a really important verse that comes up in that next section. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Internally, the born again, the renewed portion of me serves the law of God. It says, no, I want to go God's direction. I do that with my mind, but in my flesh, I serve the law of sin. My flesh is still coveting. My flesh is still lying. My flesh is still lusting. My flesh is still um, seeking approval. It's, it's doing those things. So that's the war that we're fighting. Um, we have the capability. We have the desire to go the right way. And at the same time, we have this other portion of us that's still fighting to go the wrong way. So that's the, the definition of the war. Um, now, where Paul goes next is he's going to introduce us to those combatants a little bit more thoroughly. And the combatants are the flesh and the spirit. So uh, the next section, verses 1 through 8, in chapter 8, he talks about um, the flesh is really the predominant thought here. Um, and so let me read 1 through 8, and then we'll, we'll work through it again. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh will set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's our combatants. There's the two that we're, we're fighting from. Now, last week, I, I ended the sermon by quoting um, verses 1 and 2. Um, and then what I said was, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's talking about justification. That's talking about what we spent the first handful of chapters, five or six chapters discussing, which is justification. That we are not declared innocent. Better than that, we're declared righteous. How can God be just and the justifier of people like us? Well, because he takes a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of God, and he assigns it to us. He doesn't just kind of go, well, I'll just pretend as if it's there. He, he takes real righteousness and puts it on our account. There was therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because we're in Christ, we have his righteousness. We have been declared as righteous as Jesus by God. But what we have to remember is we, we take that righteousness, that justification, and that's the banner under which we wage our war. Because what the justification tells us is there's no condemnation. You can fight this battle and everything is not wearing on every single decision, every success over sin. It, your, your, your righteousness, your relationship with God is not weighted on that. That comes from Jesus. So now you're free to engage a battle that may be difficult, that may stumble you at times, but you're not going to lose your justification because it's from God. So that's the banner that we can fight under. That's, that's where we can go. So verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And again, that's that regulating or actuating principle, the law of the spirit, the law of sin and death. Um, our, our statement of faith uh, in the free church says, on one point, it says, God's justifying grace may not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God's justifying grace must not be separated from the sanctifying power and purpose. What does that mean? Well, his justifying grace, we are justified by grace, right? We are declared to be righteous. But what I think the, the statement is getting at is God saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he doesn't just leave you alone and make you work it out the rest yourself. He's justified you for a purpose. He's justified you. He's declared you righteous. And now he begins to work in you. And so his justifying grace is not separate. It is not disconnected from his sanctifying power and purpose. It is the train, the engine of the train, and the justifying, or his sanctifying power and purpose is the, the, uh, the next car in line. It's pulling it along. Uh, so the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Well, what's it set you free from? To just be neutral? No, it set you free from the law of sin and death so that you can be, um, you can desire to do good. You can des desire to do right. Now, verse three, I think, is, is the, the pinnacle of this entire section that we're looking at. Let me read verse three and four again and then work through it very slowly. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this is a tremendous statement. God has done this. 
God did it. That's grace. That is God has done this. He doesn't say um, God gave you the tools to do this, or God made it available for you to do this, or God made you it made it possible for you to do this, or God gave you the instructions to do this. God has done this. This is the work that God has completed. This is his grace. It is all his work. He's got, what has God done? He's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did that. What did he do? Well, he gave us law. We saw that last chapter. But what we saw in, verses, in verse 12 of last chapter is that the law and the commandment is holy, good, and righteous. So the law comes in, and it's, there's nothing wrong with the law. It, it's, it's good. It's a right thing. It is, it is God's holiness. It's his desire for us. What happened is God did what the law he gave couldn't do. Why couldn't it do it? Well, because it was weakened by the flesh, not his flesh, by our flesh. So God comes in and he gives us this law. He says, here's what I want you to do. This is what it means to live well in this world. And the flesh says, I don't want that. So it's weakened by the flesh, but it's not wrong. The problem is our flesh is still in our Adamness. If you remember from, um, from chapter five, we're under Adam and then we're moved to Christ. So he did what the law was unable to do. How did he do it? What did he do? He sent his own son. He, he, he sent, the father sent the son. God the father sent the most precious thing to him. He sent his beloved son. John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me, before the foundation of the world. God the Father loved and delighted in the Son from the, before the foundation of the world, before there was any external thing for him to love within the Trinity, the Father delighted in and loved the Son. The, the Son delighted in and loved the Father. And so when God says, I'm going to do what the can't do, I'm going to set those people free from the thing that they brought on themselves, I will then give them the most precious thing to me, the thing that I love, that I delight in the most. I will send him in. I will send my son to break the, the uh, power of sin. And so does he send Jesus in as this angel floating from above or, or uh, as some prophet who's going to come and just preach great words? No, he sends his own son, his own beloved son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He, he comes not... Uh, descending from heaven in a cloud. He comes not as just uh, somebody who's proclaimed by some other prophet. Jesus himself, the eternally begotten, eternally loved, eternally glorious, second person of the Trinity, comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of. He didn't come in sinful flesh or he would be a sinner. He comes in the likeness, in the image, in the picture of sinful flesh. So he is like us in all ways, except for sin. He's our second Adam. He's our better high priest. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for sins. So what he's saying is he's come and he's like us. And that's why I think in chapter 5, Paul compares Adam and Jesus. Here's our first Adam. Here's our second Adam. This is the difference between the two. He came as Adam had been in, in a, a body that had not fallen to sin yet. And he was the one who came and he broke that. So he sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Um, that's what makes the temptation in the wilderness so powerful is Jesus is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. He came in the likeness and the image of sinful flesh. And the most startling thing, is Paul just kind of tacks on, and for sin. So God, delighting in his son from eternity past, sends his son out of the glory that he had in heaven into a human, uh, a human likeness, into a reasonable human nature. And he sends him not to lead people and say, just do what I do and you'll be saved. Instead, he sends him in for sin. He sent Jesus in as the propitiation. Remember that word propitiation or expiation of sin that we learned earlier? He came so that he might cancel sin, 
so that he might break that. So the, the picture that Paul has painted in, in the end of chapter 7 is flesh and death and sin are just all tied together, all wrapped together. And what happens is Jesus comes into the middle of that big knot, and, and he doesn't like untie it from externally. He goes inside and he destroys the tangle. And, and here's how he does it. Jesus died for our sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So again, sin and death and, and flesh are all wrapped together. Jesus comes into the middle of that, and he condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus walked in this perfect life. He lived the life that, that had we not fallen to sin, we would live. This perfect righteousness in the flesh. And what he does as he's doing this is he condemns sin in the flesh. And so when his death comes, his death then cancels death in the flesh, and he's risen again in the flesh. And so this is that picture of how justification is not only a legal declaration. It is a legal declaration, but in it are these other things that God does. He, he does what law couldn't. Law couldn't constrain sin. Law couldn't make us better people. So Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, and he destroys it. He, he makes it go away. Now, what's the repercussions of that? This is where I was, why I quoted our statement of faith, that sanctification should never be divorced, divorced from justification. Well, verse 4, why does he do this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And uh, we would expect Paul to say, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in him. Um, as a matter of fact, Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5 says, hey, don't think I came to cancel the law. I didn't came to cancel it. I came to fulfill it. So Jesus did fulfill the law, but that's not what Paul says. He draws, his, our, he draws our attention to something different. And, and, and what we have to pay attention to is um, when he says the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, not through our hard works. He, he says that the law might be fulfilled in us. That's not what I expected, but that's what we get. So we're saved from the law. We're in Christ. We're in the Spirit. And now we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. What does that mean? Well, what it means is when God sent the law, it wasn't pointless, was it? It wasn't a bad second try. I know they, they were innocent, but they fell, so I'll send them law and that'll make them better. That was never the point. So you, you can tend to look at the law and go, I guess, well, it was really pointless. No, it's not. It, it, it's not pointless. The law is actually what we fulfill in us as we're in Christ. So it shows us God's heart. It shows us God's desire. It shows us God's righteousness. And so as we walk in Christ, not in law, in Christ, we're actually fulfilling the requirements. So Jesus fulfilled the law. We're in Jesus. And so as we're behaving as Jesus, as we're behaving as disciples, we are fulfilling the requirements of the law. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, Emily uh, ran into somebody on the campus at uh, Antelope Valley College, and they said, you know, there's a blessing for Christians who keep the Passover. And they meant the literal Passover. And Emily was just like, I've never heard anything like that before. And I was like, yeah, we, we do that. We keep the Passover every Sunday when we celebrate Lord's Supper. Um, the requirement of the, the law is fulfilled in Christ. And so what we keep is not the letter of the law, but the, the idea of it, the, the, the heart of it, what we're supposed to be about. And the other thing I think is important to remember at this time is we don't just take this requirements of the law are fulfilled in us and say, you know, go run off and do it ourselves. We have to remember what's all come before. God did this. He did it through Jesus. Jesus is how we walk. So Philippians 2.13, for this, uh, for it is uh, God's will to work in us, uh, to work. Um, it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work. And so would God's will and work in us be different than his law? Would it be at odds with his law and say, well, I'm not going to do that? No. So that's the idea here. That's, that's what's going on is he's, he's saved us, but he hasn't left us alone. He's, he's continuing to work in us. And so what does that look like for us? Well, the next portion of the verse says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
And that's the important part is we don't walk according to the flesh, which is in, in, um, uh, diving into sin, nor do we walk according to the law, which is the moralist or the legalist or the self-righteous person. We don't do either of those. Instead, we walk in a third way. We walk according to the spirit. Um, so in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 6, he said, we serve in a new way of the spirit, not by the letter. Not, that's not how we serve is not by the letter. We serve by the spirit. In verse, chapter 6, verse 4, he talks about that we walk in newness of life. Uh, so we're not opposed to the law, but we're not under the law. Instead, we're in the spirit and we walk in a very different way. So let me recapture that sentence because I think that sentence is huge. One more time. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of spirit, sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of law may be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. First of all, do you recognize the Trinitarian nature of what, God has, of what Paul has just told us? The Father sent the Son. The Son canceled sin. We now walk in the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son has conspired together to not just save us, but to cause us to walk after him. This verse, I think, is incredibly important for us um, because what we have, the picture that Paul has painted so far is that we are internally new. We have this newness of heart and we desire to follow the law of God. But the flesh has not been renewed, and so we struggle against it. So what this, this verse promises us is it gives us the power to wage that war. So this, this lingering sin that's in us has been defeated. It's been broken. And so now we can look to this promise and go, but Jesus did that. God sent his son. God, Jesus did this. I now walk in newness of spirit. So when we're fighting in the lingering sin, when we're warring against it, we can pull this out. When we're repenting of not warring against it, we can pull this out. Remember, there is no condemnation because of what God has done. And that can help us then renew and start over again, walk in newness of life. We can, we can do that. The picture is Jesus won the war. The war is over. Jesus defeated it. On the, on the cross, it, through death, he defeated all of that. What we're called to do is now we're cleaning, doing these cleanup battles, these little skirmishes that we have to fight on a regular basis. Um, there is a story about um, a man named Hiro Odana. He was a Japanese lieutenant in World War II, and he was stationed in the Philippines. He was an intelligence officer. And he got separated from his unit as the U.S. troops marched north. And so he ran off into the woods and he, or the jungle and he hid. Um, and so he is hiding out in the jungle. He never knew that World War II ended. He remained in the jungle until 1974. Um, and the only way that they could finally persuade him to surrender is they got his aging former commander to fly to the Philippines and tell him, no, really, hero, the war is over. Um, Odana, uh, uh, Onoda, Onoda said, this is a quote, every Japanese soldier was prepared for death. But as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not to die. I had to follow my orders as I was a soldier. And so he's hiding out in the woods, conducting guerrilla warfare. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people in the Philippines after he was liberated who were really mad because they thought during his 30 years in hiding, he was responsible for multiple killings in the area. That's sin. That's lingering sin in your life. That's, that's what's going on is it's hiding out in the jungle and it's conducting guerrilla warfare. Is it, does it stand a chance of ever being relieved of its duties? Does it ever have a chance of being resupplied or restocked or, or rearmed with better weapons? It's cut off. It's isolated. The war is over. It just acts like it's not. And so that's what lingering sin is doing. That's what it's like. So we can continue to fight that fight. You're not hiding in the jungle. <laughs> Your side won. The war is over. Do you believe the war is over? Do you trust that the war is over? Or do you fight like it isn't? Uh, do you fight like this is the, the war to end all wars? What you have is you have these lingering sins hiding out that you need to deal with. And so that's where Paul goes next. Listen to how he explains it. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, 
set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their things on the mind of the Spirit. For, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the reality is that you have been justified. You have been made right with God. And so now as you get this guerrilla warfare popping up once in a while, what you have to live is not like World War II. World War II is over. The, 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 the ruling commander defeated the foes. What you have to live like is now that World War II is over, I get these little attacks. I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm going to live in the freedom that was won for me by the victor. So that's the picture is, is the flesh then has not been renewed. Uh, it's it still got those little things hiding out in the jungle in it. But our spirit has. We have been liberated. So what I'd like to ask you to do, is he says that we should set our mind on the things of the spirit. For to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. Anybody here want life and peace? Or would you rather have death? I think we would all rather have life and peace. So set your mind on that. So what I want to challenge you this week is, Ask yourself, what am I setting my mind on? What do you find beautiful? What do you spend time delighting in? I mean, really, give it a, give it a good, good hard look. Say, wait a minute, is this worthy of it? Is, is there anything redemptive in this? Is there anything good? Um, think about Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth of praise, think about these things. That's part of the battle. Notice the law of your mind. Your heart desires this, but the law of your mind wants something else. You have to fight that battle in your brain as well. That's why Paul tells us, think on these things. So set your mind on them, delight in them, work on them, focus on them. And if you look at the balance of everything that you're looking at, and you're consuming maybe a lot of social media, a lot of bad news, um, maybe a lot of things on television, streaming services that are not the greatest, and just a little bit on things that are beautiful, maybe it's time to rebalance that. Maybe it's time to say, you know, I need to find maybe a good book to listen, to read or, or listen to. Um, maybe some good podcasts that would feed my soul. Um, and what you'll find is those things will begin to crowd out the other things. So set your mind on those things, not on the things of death. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ. Have you been raised with Christ? Isn't that what Paul has been arguing in this whole section? If you're in Christ, you've been raised with him. If you have then been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are, on, that are above, not on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who appears, or when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So is Paul saying, shun everything that has to do with the world? I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is he, we're supposed to set our minds in a specific way. I want to show you something I posted on Facebook recently. Um, where'd it go? Oops. Nope, I can't do it. I can't share it. Sorry. Some settings got messed up on my, uh, my computer. Um, anyway, I took a picture. I was sitting out in my backyard. Um, some friends of, us had friends of ours had just given us these really nice outdoor carpets. And so I set it up and the lights were on and it was just a beautiful evening. And I took a picture and posted that on Facebook. And I said, I love my backyard. Is that out of line with what Paul says here? Don't set your mind on the things of the earth. Well, there is a way to delight in the things of the earth that God has given us. The earth is God's gift. He, he created it. He, it's not the antithesis of it. The thing is, what am I doing? Am I out there praising that nice, beautiful backyard and saying, this is the greatest thing ever and I want nothing more? Um, I can delight in it. But you know what else I use that for? Is quite often I'll go out there and sit and read in the backyard because there's you no know, mosquitoes. It's nice. It's cool. I, I'll sometimes go out there and do sermon work. I'll have commentaries open reading out there. So what I'm doing is I'm taking the things of the earth that God is giving me and using them for the higher purpose of delighting more in God. 
So back to Psalm 119, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. When you look up in the sky, should you go, oh, I hate that? You can't. It's impossible because the heavens are telling of the glory of God. How can you look up and go, I hate that place up there? So when we set our things on the mind of the Spirit and, and we walk in that direction, it doesn't mean shun everything in the, in the universe. What it means is use it appro- appropriately. Put it in the right perspective. Don't let it become the top thing, but keep it in order. Use it for those things that will cause you to actually delight in that. So that is the, the fight that we have, the contestants in the war. The war is the law of the mind, the law of the flesh. I want to do good. Laws or evils close at hand. That's the war. The combatants are the spirit and the flesh. And so here's the victor who wins, uh, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Here's the good news, folks. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a physical body. You do. What it means is you are not under it. You are not controlled and ruled by it. You have now moved into the category of being in Christ, in the Spirit. You're in Christ. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So you're in Him. He dwells in you. And together, He's doing something in us. So this is the walk. This is the way that we're supposed to do this. Um, There is... Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Um, There is no second blessing where you suddenly get the Spirit later on. Um, Baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't happen eventually when you become more mature. If you are in Christ, you are in the Spirit. If you are not, you do not have the Spirit. That's how it works. The promise of the Father is the Spirit, and he's come to us. And he's been given to us. So Luke 24, 49, Jesus talks about the promise of the Spirit. He says, or the promise of the Father will come. And then in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's the Spirit. Which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's that idea of being in the Spirit. Why does he give us the Spirit? So that we can walk, so that we can do the righteous things of the law. Listen to where he goes. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the promise of the Father is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It comes on us. Um, God had, Jesus hadn't given the Spirit yet. This is the normal state from now on, is if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. And he does it not just so that we have uh, fun experiences. He gives it to us for mission. You will be my witnesses. So that's what we're supposed to do. So that's what we're be given. And now... If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about sanctification. Justification is God's righteous, or declare that we are righteous because of a foreign righteousness being assigned to us. Sanctification is growing in that righteousness, is, is becoming more holy, is, is living as if that were true of you. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. And so what Paul tells us here is he's warning us, walk in according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So you have the Spirit. You have this tremendous power available to you, and you can walk in Him, or you can grieve Him. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So do you see what he says in that one verse? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You can grieve Him because you've been sealed by Him. He's there. So either way, He's in you, you're in Him, and you can walk. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Walk according to Him. 
So he says in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is is life because of righteousness. So again, that struggle that we're in is the spirit is new, the body is dead. So real quick, why did God do it this way? Um, Why didn't God, when he saved us, when he renewed our spirit, why didn't he just renew our body at the same moment? Well, I think because if he did both of them together, then we'd be in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not his plan. He has people that he's planning to gather from the beginning of time to the end of time. And, and so he's working. That's why I think the, uh, the commission is given in light of be- receiving the Spirit. And so we have to be in this interim time between when salvation happens and when renewal happens. So that's why he doesn't do them at the same time. Is he's, he's got more people. History needs to play out more. So why not the other way around? Maybe this is a question that never occurred to you, but it fascinated me this week. Why didn't he redeem our bodies and leave our spirits alone and then at some point renew our spirits? Um, And the reason is because if we had renewed flesh that wouldn't be uh, subject to death and decay, if we had renewed flesh and not a renewed spirit, it would be hell on earth. It would be horrible. Um, This is what God was getting at in in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall. After uh, Adam and Eve had fallen, God has announced a curse on the serpent. He's cursed the ground. He announced what sin will be like for them. Um, Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And then the sentence ends. So what God is doing is I think it's God is looking and saying, Adam has fallen. If we give him of the tree of life and his flesh is made new, he will live forever in living hell because his spirit will be constantly at rebellion against him. And so that's why he kicks them out of the garden. And he seals it so they can't get at that. That's not the way it should work. So imagine for a second um, if God had redeemed the flesh first and just jump forward to Genesis chapter 6, the time of Noah. Verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Imagine if those people with that kind of evil inclination, that kind of violence, couldn't die. It would be hell. It would be horrible. So that's why God didn't redeem the flesh first. So then why would he redeem the spirit? Why didn't he just wait until the very end when he's got all his people gathered? Why would he redeem the spirit? Because redeeming our spirit before he redeems our body is actually the best possible way to do it. It is actually a good way to do this. And here's why. We have a fighting chance this way against sin. Had our bodies been redeemed, but our spirits not, we wouldn't have a chance. There would be nothing that we could war against sin with. But having our spirit renewed and our body not gives us a fighting chance. It gives us a way to fight against that lingering sin. Here's why. Said in a negative, but think of it as, and flip it around and think of it in the positive. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now redeem that. Turn that around. If the heart has been made new, what comes out of the heart? The opposite of those things, walking according to the law, fulfilling the righteous requirements of law, though the body resists, where our prime motivating factor, our our energy source is our heart and our desires. So God renewed that so that we could war against it, so we could fight. And so that's the fight. So we're in this war, flesh against spirit, doing good, evil at hand, but there's tremendous news. We're not left in this condition forever. We're not going to walk in this war for the rest of our days. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
the war will come to an end. There is a, a, a place, a, a state in time, a place in time where the war finishes, that it's done. Our bodies will decay, they'll die, they'll decay, but they will be raised incorruptible. We will be like him in the end. So with that in mind, can you fight the fight? Can you engage in this war? Can you recognize where the battle lines are drawn? Can you find those hidden soldiers who are, who are hiding in the jungle, launching guerrilla warfare? Can you find them and say, they're all alone, they're isolated, there are no power behind them, and instead begin to walk according to the Spirit? That's the promise. That's the hope. And so that is what we are called to do on a daily basis. And so again, I want to one more time ask you, this week, consider what you find beautiful. Take a look at where you spend your mental energy. What is it that you're consuming on a regular basis? Just ask yourself, is this delightful? Is it beautiful? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it causing me to walk according to the spirit or is it luring me to walk according to the flesh? And by the power of the spirit who dwells in you, adjust accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to the war that rages within us, and it doesn't surprise you. It's not something you weren't aware of. Lord, you understand. You know what's going on because you ordained it this way. Lord, thank you that there is no condemnation for us now because we're in Christ Jesus. Thank you for liberating us to fight the war the way we can with setbacks and advances and not a fear of losing overall. And so, Lord, thank you also for the promise that you've given us that in the future, the war will end. There will be a day where we'll lay our weapons down because it's all over and we will enjoy the hard-won peace that Jesus bought for us. In the meantime, Lord, I pray that we would all be walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Make it possible, Holy Spirit, because you dwell within us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.